Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Kelvin. This week, we are incredibly excited to bring you our conversation with Wesley Lowry. Wesley is a Pulitzer Prize winning CBS News journalist. He has covered topics such as the San Francisco drug crisis, the mental health of medical professionals during the pandemic, and has done extensive research on race and policing in America. That's right. And he's also one of our spring 2022 geopolitics fellows this semester. So before we dive into the episode, remember to follow at Fly on the Wall Pod on social media or shoot us an email by writing to flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. And to ensure that you never miss an episode, well, who would? Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or SoundCloud by searching Fly on the Wall, a GU Politics Podcast. That's right. Thanks for joining us here on Fly on the Wall. And with that, let's dive into our conversation with Wesley Lowry. So, uh, Wesley Lowry, thank you so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall. Um, our first question is uh, really, you know, as a distinguished Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist, what got you started? Um, you know, when did you first decide that you wanted to go into journalism and what keeps you going and motivated in the field? You know, I, I've always wanted to do this. I don't know exactly what it was or, or when exactly I kind of first got the bug, but what I always tell people is, you know, I worked for my middle school newspaper and then my high school newspaper and then my college newspaper. And this is basically the only thing I've been good at since I was in you know, middle school. Uh, I don't have a ton of other options. And so this is kind of what I got. But I, I really love journalism. You know, I, I really, I know among the things that were really intoxicating for me when I was younger um, and when I was coming up was the idea, first and foremost, that your job could be to give people information that they needed. It felt important, it felt noble, it felt fun, right? For like a know-it-all kid, like my job is to be more of a know-it-all. That sounds awesome, right? <laughs> um, I think that it was really, really intriguing to me that my job could be to call people smarter than me every day and ask them whatever question I had. That seemed pretty cool. And, um, you know, and so, or that something would happen and, I, and my job would be to spend the entire day learning everything I could about it, to become an expert by the end of the day about something I knew nothing about the day before. To me, that's fascinating, right? And so I always think about like, when I work on a piece or a project or whatever it is, like this is an opportunity to learn a ton about something that I might not know anything about. And that's new, that's different, that's interesting. And at the end of it, now I know something about it. Now I have that experience. Now I... I, you know, I, I have that knowledge. I've read those books. I've done those interviews. And so that to me has just always been so interesting, so fun, so important. And I think why I still really love the job. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you love like becoming an expert on a topic, but mm. we wanted to mention that you cover a lot of polarizing and a lot of very delicate, to delicate yes. topics, yeah. right? You've looked at drug addiction. You've looked at mental health. You've looked at race in America, all things that are very like uh, pertinent in our current society. How do you go about talking to people in the field about hard topics such as these? I think that I think that we make mistakes sometimes when we, as journalists or members of the media or reporters, right, when we think that talking to people is any different than just normal talking to people, right? That humans have conversations about hard, difficult topics every single day, right? In our churches and synagogues, in our classrooms, in our homes, in our group texts. Like, we, we, we talk about these things, right? 
And so the same things that make those conversations productive are the same things that can make these conversations productive when they're on the record or when they're with a journalist and a reporter, right? You want everyone to feel uh, that they're being heard, that they're being understood. You can't come in with a predetermined set of questions all the time. Sometimes you got to let the conversation go where it goes, right? And, and I think that that, look, I think all that's easier said than done, but I think that, you know, I'm someone who's spent a lot of time thinking about my interview style, thinking about how I get people to open up, getting to think about how I get people to talk to me. I, I also think sometimes on sensitive issues, a lot of people want to talk, right? They just haven't necessarily been given the space or the venue to do that. And so, um, but people not only want to talk, they want to be heard, right? And so I think I was talking to a student a few days ago and I was talking about echoing, uh, that when you interview someone, you it's when you paraphrase back to them the things that they've said. And one of the reasons, and I do that a lot in my interviews, especially on things that are complicated, things that are sensitive, things where, because look, think about our, our lives our, with our friends, with our parents, with our, our significant others, right? How many times does someone who we know really, really well say something and we still don't really get what they're trying to say to us? So now imagine someone you've never met before from a different part of the country who you just ran up on and asked them some complicated questions and maybe they're nervous because they're talking to them, right? There's a solid chance that even if we record accurately the words they say, we don't understand the thing they're trying to say. And so I spent, and so I try to think about like, how can I, can I repeat back? Can I ask the question, the same question a few different ways to try to get the nuances, the nuances and the, and the complexities of, of questions and, and their answers. And so I think all those things really matter a lot too. Mm. I'd love to zero in on um, on one of the things that you said about giving people a space to have their voice heard, um, particularly, uh, you know, here in 2022, um, as we see the balkanization and polarization mm -hmm. of news outlets. Um, how do you go about making that call as a journalist deciding, you know, in whatever time frame you have, you know, however many words or, you know, airtime you have to make that call as to which voices you include? I think for me, you know, so I believe, I've talked about this before, I believe in what I call the mosaic theory of journalism. Um, and I believe in that it actually, it works in a few different ways. But among the things is that, you know, there used to be this idea that like you're the journalist and you would go out and get quote unquote the story, right? You would call everyone, you would talk to everyone and you would get it in, in, in completeness, right? And, and I, look, uh, having spent some time on the investigative unit at the Post and other places, like I really believe in rigorous reporting, calling everyone, trying to get everyone, right? But what we also know, especially in our news environment with our news cycles, is that it's almost impossible for one reporter, one outlet, to actually get the entirety of a story, right? I'm going to get a part of it, and then my friend at the New York Times is going to get a different part of it, and my friend at the LA Times is going to get a different part of it, and then this one character will only talk to Fox News, and the other person will only talk to Anderson Cooper. Like, and then in totality, we can see the whole story. Of, of what the story is, right? That each one of these journalists, these outlets, these places shades in part of the mosaic, right? So for me, on a given story, because you know, most of the stories I write or, or work on are, are stories that there are tons of reporters who have worked on, right? I'm, I'm not, you know, very often like uncovering some secret thing no one else has ever heard of before. I'm very often coming back in and, and reporting on things that other people have reported on before or where there's a lot of competition. So I think a lot about what can I bring to this story that um, either no one else can or no one else has, or you know, like what, what does that look like? You know, who is the character here who will only talk to me? What is the question that I'm the only one who's asking, right? Um, it's trying to not necessarily go with the pack all the time, but sometimes try to break off and be a little bit different than the pack. And so that's, that's something I think about a lot. You know, I, I think that when we think about journalism, when we think about storytelling, um, we, 
sometimes forget how many subjective decisions go into it. Which character is the main character? Which character is a side character? Which expert you quote? Which expert you use? How do you... And so I don't know that there's necessarily a formula for how you make those decisions, but I do think it's important to recognize that they are, that they are decisions and to try to be deliberate about them, right? And so some, sometimes that is saying, okay, well, like this expert is like sexier. They work at a bigger university, but this is the person who actually like really knows the stuff. All right, maybe I'm going with them instead of the Harvard or Yale or Georgetown person, right? Or, and so sometimes it's something as little or as simple as that, right? Or it's, hey, do I have any women in this piece or people of color in this piece? Or like, you know, whose voice is missing here? Who has had a lot of exposure previously and who has not? Like whose story here is relatively undertold or untold, right? So I think all of those things can like factor into to how you make those like little subjective decisions that then add up to the result of your journalism. Yeah, so uh, a lot of what we've been asking have been like more broad strokes. So let's zoom in to your specific coverage of the San Francisco drug crisis, right? What was it like diving into the intersection of public health, the criminal justice system, and municipal politics like as a whole? It was really interesting. You know, I hadn't spent a ton of time in the Bay Area. I'd been out there for some policing reporting I did in San Francisco and Oakland a few years earlier. Um, and the reporting we were doing at 60 Minutes was primarily about Chesa Boudin, the, the prosecutor, um, and, and the work they were doing in the Tenderloin and still are trying to do um, to deal with an overdose crisis there uh, with some rising crime rates on, on, on some issues, not on everything, not all of the crimes going up. And this battle that was playing out between the prosecutor's office and the police union and the police, right? And, and in the midst of all of this are real concerns about people who were being victimized, people who need services, about a public health crisis that is the overdose crisis. Um, you know, it was interesting. I think that, again, I think for me as someone who's been a national correspondent, um, I always try to make sure when I drop into a place that I'm read up, that I know what's going on, that I'm paying attention. I, I also think that... Uh, you know, and so, so that meant spending a lot of time reading local coverage, but then also reading the bigger pieces that had been written about Chesa, about San Francisco, about drugs, about the Tenderloin. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to folks locally. You know, what was also happening, right, all this, all these conversations about the new progressive prosecutor and these policies and the police, all that was happening in the context of a pandemic. And so trying to figure out... Um, you know, how much of this is about the pandemic and how much of this is about this new policy or this other thing, right? Trying to make sure we're talking to all the stakeholders, to family members, to people who've been harmed, to victims of crime, to police, to, to the prosecutor themselves, to service organizations, right? Trying to contextualize San Francisco and so reaching out to other cities and trying to see if what San Francisco was seeing was unique or was the same as these other places, right? And so all of these things, all these steps, all of this... It was just very important. It was very, um, you know, rigorous. It had a great team I was working with, uh, Billy Brownstein and uh, and her assistant producer, Maddie. And, you know, we, we had a really good time out there. But I, um, I think that, uh, you know, for me, the journalism I'm most proud of or the thing that I think is most important is doing work that really has that rigor, right? That where you really called everyone, you reached out to everyone. But then secondarily, and I think this is one of the real push and pulls that we deal with in journalism a lot, how much of our job is to accurately record what people say and how much of our job is to interrogate and figure out if what the person is saying is true. Mm. So in a case like this, right, how much of our job is to accurately record where the police union says this and the mayor says this and the prosecutor says this? How much of our job is to figure out who's telling the truth, right, who's right? And, and, and there's some push and pull in that. 
right? And, and as we ran down the details of a lot of these cases, we encountered a lot of places where the thing we had been told just wasn't quite true, right? And I was really glad, I was really proud of our team for doing that journalism, doing that research, because I just think it was really, really important. Mm. And if I could just ask a follow-up on that particular case, yeah. um, you know, I uh, worked in politics in Seattle for a while, and there's many people say there's a lot of parallels between the situation in San Francisco and Seattle, particularly when it comes to um, the drug crisis um, and, and unhoused folks. And I was just wondering, and also how mental health plays into all of that. And I was just wondering, with something that feels so new um, in terms of a new addition to our national conversation, particularly with mental health, and of course you have another story, the parallel pandemic, that was about the mental health yeah. of medical professionals. I was just wondering how you see that as an additional factor working into our politics and our journalism, particularly because it's so hard to see on its surface. Look, I think that the mental health crisis in America is one of the most urgent and important stories uh, that we have. It's one of the most difficult to cover. I think it's one of the most undercovered. And when I say that, I'm not saying that there are not journalists who are covering it and who are doing really good work doing it. I'm saying that it's something that we should be seeing major projects done on every single year by every single news organization. It should be something we're routinely talking about in public spaces. Um, it's really, really important um, because because our our mental health factors into every other issue, um, whether that be violence and crime and poverty and unemployment, uh, whether it be our politics and our polarization our inclination towards conspiracy and conspiracy theory, right? Like it factors into everything, to, to education and educational outcomes, to our interpersonal relationships, to the way we, you know, like all of these things matter, right? And, and I think that that is, and so I think it's just really, really important. And, and I, um, and so look, I, I think that that is an important conversation to have, you know, the parallel pandemic reporting we did at 60 Minutes was about, um, first responders who by that point were entering the second year of the pandemic um, and having to be on the front lines, having to be the people who were treating COVID patients initially having no idea what to do or how to help them, very often being the last person or the only person sitting with them in their final moments, having to help families make these decisions and just talking about how exhausted, how burnt out, how difficult all of this had been for them. And so, you know, I, uh, I, I think that there is a... Um, you, you know, I, I think that there's something that's so important for us to talk about and, and, and to talk about openly. Um, and I think there still is some public stigma around these issues, uh, but that stigma and in in at times our inability to fully talk about these things can prevent us from fully uh, diving in and understanding and therefore being able to remedy and to fix things, right? Because when we look at mental health, we're talking about a space, it's, it's a healthcare conversation, right? It's a world in which with treatment, with medication, with therapies, with meditation, with, with where many of these things can be remedied and people's outcomes can improve. But we can't do that if we can't, we can't resolve or remedy a problem if we can't see it and address it and talk about it. And so I was really happy with that piece. Um, my producer, Aisha Siddiqui and Emily Cameron, who are amazing superstars, um, we did that down in Georgia together and, you know, got a lot of feedback from uh, med uh, from medical professionals who were burnt out, who were exhausted and who felt like they're, they've been going through a crisis for these years. 
Yeah, I guess I have another follow-up if we're talking about the parallel pandemic, but is there a certain level of, like, finesse when it comes to uh, telling the story and, like, I guess doing more than, like, quantifying the experiences of this parallel pandemic? Because it's really hard to talk about mental health, so is there, like, a certain level of scrutiny you have to apply to, like, what you say or what you do when you talk about this? Yes, I think we want to be really deliberate in particular about our language, right? What we use, how we talk about things, trying not to advance stereotypes or stigmas. Um, But I think that one of the things that's most powerful very often is letting people, giving people a platform to tell their stories and to walk through what their lives have been like. I mean, for us at that point, you know, we're approaching or had just passed the anniversary of the pandemic. And then in some cases, this was just a reason. It was a moment for us to stop and sit and think and listen to healthcare professionals. We'd heard from a lot of them in the very first days of the pandemic, right? But now we were talking about all these other things. You know, we're talking about masks and we're talking about vaccines at the time, which just started or we're just starting to figure out, right? So, you know, it's like, let's, let's stop and check back in with those folks who we were hearing from a lot at the beginning. Well, what's still going on with them, right? I think one thing that in journalism, I think one trick is to try to follow up with people. If someone was worth talking to on Tuesday, they're probably still worth talking to on Friday. And they're probably still worth talking to a year from Tuesday, right? And so if the first responders and how they were dealing with the pandemic was a story worth telling at the beginning of the pandemic, it was certainly a story worth revisiting a year. Hmm. So I'd love to pivot to another central part of your journalism, um, which was your um, coverage of race in America, um, particularly the uh, the George Floyd murder, um, which mm-hmm. was an event that rocked the nation and really spurred a national reckoning with race. Um, as a journalist, what was it like covering that event? Why do you think it had the impact that it did? Well, so by the time George Floyd was killed, I had been covering issues of race and policing and justice for six years. You know, I'd started on that beat in 2014 after the death of Michael Brown and Ferguson. And it's so for me, what happened in Minneapolis was unsurprising, was the coverage that I did afterwards in many ways was something I had been preparing for and had done many times before. Uh, but it was happening in an environment in which there was a captive audience in which the entire eyes of the world had turned and shifted to Minneapolis into this video, and in which I felt it important to lean on those six years of reporting, of sources, of perspective, of analysis, and to try to figure out what, what I could add to this conversation that might look and feel different. And, and so what we did is, you know, for the for 60 Minutes at the time, I did two segments. We did one that was kind of a report from the ground. Sat down with uh, Thelonious, uh, George Floyd's brother. Uh, sat down with Benjamin Crump, uh, George Floyd's uh, family attorney, who had previously represented Trayvon Martin's family and Michael Brown's family and Tamir Rice's family. And I, I have known um, and worked on stories with Ben Crump for, at this point, for years. Uh, sat down with Reverend Al Sharpton, spent time with him the morning of George Floyd's funeral, um, kind of behind the scenes as he was preparing it and, and talked to him, right? And so we did a piece that was kind of a report from the ground. But then secondarily, we did a, um, but then secondarily, uh, we did a piece that asked the question of why did this happen here? 
why here, why this place? And what we did in that is we looked at the history of Minneapolis. Um, I'd, I'd been in Minneapolis covering issues of race and policing previously. I'd been there in 2015 after Jamar Clark was killed and there was massive protest and demonstration. Been there when Justine Damon was killed. Um, there was, you know, and so there was kind of, this had been building in Minneapolis, right? I think sometimes something, a story like this happens and we're like, why that place? What's going? And, and so what we try to do is try to lay out the why. Um, and then also, and then also wrote a piece for the Atlantic, leaning on and based on a lot of that reporting that we did on the ground and that and that I did, looking at the, looking at and telling the story of the urgency, why Minneapolis broke, why here, why at this time, what this looked like, trying to document the exhaustion that people felt, that these young activists had felt. They'd been in the streets, they'd done this time and time and time and time again. And and here was another one of these videos. It was so egregious and it was so difficult, right? And, and trying to document and think about and look at how and why uh, so much the rhetoric and conversation had shifted so dramatically. 2014, we were having debates on cable news about whether or not the term Black Lives Matter was racist. In 2020, we're discussing and debating the idea of abolishing the police or defunding the police. Now, I'm not saying people want to do that. Right? The majority wants to do this debate, right? But that's a massive shift in where the conversation is, right? And, and I think that there's some conversation about and some exploration about why. And I think I tried to do that in the Atlantic piece. Then did a piece for Newsweek uh, that ran on the cover looking at, um, at kind of where do we go next? What does this look like? What does this mean? I went down to, to Houston, where George Floyd had grown up, and I spent time in the housing project where he grew up, people who knew him, um, where there was a second memorial down there, and, and looking and thinking about this idea of what might it mean for us as a country to reckon, to, um, to grapple with our racial history, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was just a very, um, it, you know, it, it was it was quite a moment. It was a lot of work. Now I think about all that, <laughs> but I but I um, but it was a moment where it felt like the conversation really mattered, and that journalism could help push that conversation forward and push it forward in ways uh, that push it forward in ways that would have been productive, and I, I think it did. And so, um, you know, I. I it's a weird and strange thing to feel like I've got some expertise in or that I've spent a lot of time, you know, working on and, and, and about. And, you know, these are stories that are sensitive. They're very charged. People have a lot of emotion about. And, you know, I think that I, um, over the years, I think I have had to grow and adapt um, in terms of uh, the emotion I bring to the stories. And, and um, but, but I think it's been a really good um, experience for me to watch history um, from such a close uh, front row seat mm. and to be able to know and speak with so many of the people who have really been on the front lines of these conversations and um, and also to track the progress and the change and the things that are different this many years into a movement like this as opposed to um, at the beginning. Mm. And you mentioned this dramatic shift from 2014 or so to today um, from you debating about you know, the use of the term Black Lives Matter to, you know, 
to conversations about police abolition. And I'm wondering, you know, as someone who has done the reading and the research, obviously, you know, you know, the average American probably hasn't gone as in depth um, on all the different facets of um, police in America or race in America. And so I'm wondering if you ever observe a gap or a difference between um, perhaps journalists and professionals and stakeholders and activists who are really invested in this issue and maybe folks who tune in, you know, when a large event happens um, and then all of a sudden the conversation is shifted and they feel um, the ground taken out from I wonder if there's, if that's an effect that you observe. Yeah, I think there are massive gaps. I, I think that the smartest conversations are happening among a, sm- a tiny little sliver of folks uh, who are the most involved, who are working on these issues the closest, uh, who are in the activist spaces. Actually, they're having the smartest conversations, and right behind them are some uh, police folks who are also talking about these things. Um, then there's a big gulf and gap, and then there's a bunch of people in the media who care about these things very intensely for three-week periods every eight months. <laughs> then there's everybody else, right? And so I do think there's a huge gulf and gap um, between what the average person on the street might think about these things, how they're conceptualizing them, how people who follow the issues more closely do, but then also the people who are really in the trenches doing the work, I think they understand this in a way that's way different than anything else and anybody else. Do you think that there's, that that gap causes friction between the viewer and the media and the journalists, if there's that gap of information and maybe the issue has shifted and viewers aren't aren't on that same page? Very often, right? And again, I think part of it is this question, and it's an open question, and the answer to the question might be, I think is different, journalist to journalist and to outlet to outlet, medium to medium, right? But the question is, what is our role? Is it to explain? Is it to facilitate the smartest version of the conversation? Is it to just simply note that these two people sitting next to each other disagree, right? Mm-hmm. Is it to correct them on their facts? Is it to guide them? Is it to, right? And I think that we, uh, I think the collective we in the media, I think really struggle with that. What is our job in a moment of conflict? Mm. Is it to reflect that there is conflict? Is it to adjudicate that conflict in some way? Is it to um, facilitate a resolution to the conflict is, you know like how are we and what are we supposed to do with these conversations and so I, I think that there's a ton there's a ton potentially there um, and, and I, again and going back to mosaic theory of journalism I think that the reality is the answer is probably all of the above but if we actually analyzed what we are functionally actually doing I would say we have a lot of some of those things and very few of the others Right? I don't actually think there are many places in our media where there's very much smart conversation happening about these questions, right? Um, and, and I think that that is, I think that's a failing. I think that's a failing of ours. So our next question concerns something that you've already brought up, and that is how hard doing the work of journalism is. And... This is in consideration with your Fatal First project, where you gathered data on hundreds of police shootings across the country. How did you go through the effort to process and gather all of that data? And how did you feel as you're conducting that important research? Well, the first thing you do is you have really talented, really smart people who work with you. Um, You know, we had 
on Fatal Force, and then later on Fired, Rehired, and Murder with Impunity, which were three big police data projects I did at the Washington Post. We had massive teams that worked on those projects, right? Um, I, two of the three of them, I pitched and proposed, and I was hyper involved. I was involved in the proposal of the second one too, but but the or the third one, but in all of those cases, these were massive team efforts, and these projects could not have happened without each person uh, participating and, and being involved. You know, the Fatal Force it grew out of the reporting we were doing on the ground in Ferguson and elsewhere, uh, in Ferguson and elsewhere, we realized that there was this massive debate happening about whether police shootings were happening too often, whether they were an epidemic of black people being killed in the streets, or whether they didn't actually happen that often. They were statistically rare, and most police officers never fire their weapons. So we'd write all these stories up, quoting both sides, and at some point we had to figure out who was telling, like who was right. So we started looking around and we realized that there was no official government data about these things. It didn't work. It wasn't there, right? There were a few citizen journalism efforts that, that had, had provided um, you know, a really good start on these questions, but, the, but there really wasn't a, um, but, the, but there really wasn't a, um, Like a, there wasn't a federal repository for this information. So in 2015, uh, the team at the Post launched Fatal Force. That same year, a team at the Guardian launched uh, The Counted, which was a similar project. Um, in the meantime, there's an organization called Fatal, Fatal Encounters, uh, which also tracks uh, people killed by the police. Although they, at the time, I, I, if I remember correctly, I don't think they were public-facing yet, or I don't think their data was public-facing yet. I could be wrong on that. Um, and so, but us and The Guardian launched these kind of real-time efforts to track fatal police shootings. It was a lot of work. But the thing I'll say about journalism is, it's both a lot of work and oftentimes not that much work, right? I remember one time, uh, Bob Woodward, uh, him and I were at an event together. And not and to be clear, it's not like we're like friends or buddies or anything. We just <laughs> happen to be at this thing and ask him a question, right? And, and, and But he said, he goes, you know, sometimes people ask me how I get these, like, government documents and like all these stuff and he goes I ask for them right I, I did a, had a phone call the other day with a, a, a person who works in a uh, drug counseling center who I'm interested in writing about and I noticed that in the clips she'd always been quoted but no one had ever spent any time in her center no one had ever like it and so I asked her can I hang out with you for two days she goes yeah sure come on these days right that journalism is about calling, is finding people's phone numbers and asking them questions, right? And, and, and so even with a hyper-complicated project like Fatal Force, um, but again, where we needed resources and people and time and energy, what it amounted to was us asking a question. How many people are killed by the police? How many people are shot and killed by the police each year? And then, and then drilling in and trying to find the answer to it. You know, and, and, and so it was a very... Um, you know, and I, for better or worse, really enjoy the minutia of that type of work. Like having a question and figuring out the answer to it, it's a lot of fun. Mm. So to look at that state of journalism from a different angle, um, you know, the, the discipline of journalism has come under a lot of criticism, has been a part of the conversation recently. Um, mm. Particularly, you know, we... Um, briefly touched on your experience covering um, Ferguson in 2014. Um, and during that time, you were actually briefly detained while working as a journalist in the area. And I was just wondering, 
uh, from your perspective, what the state of free media and free press is, what, uh, what the experience of being detained by the state, by the police, as a journalist um, was like? Did it erode any trust, or did it make you view journalism differently? Well, you know, we're having this conversation um, as there's an ongoing uh, conflict in Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, with Russia having invaded Ukraine. And in recent days, there have been a few journalists killed um, in Ukraine. Um, presumably by Russian forces, um, is my understanding from the reading. And and, um, and a time when independent media is being silenced in Russia, and former colleagues of mine at the Washington Post who are there are having to take their bylines off of their stories because they, Russia passed this new law that makes it unclear if it's okay to do independent reporting or if that will open some of my colleagues to imprisonment. Um, and so, you know, I, I just think that it's important to note that in any conversation right in this moment about mm -hmm. uh, the state of the free press is like we're watching um, on the one hand um, the vital importance of an open and free press so we know what's going on in this like extremely crucial international conflict. On the other hand, we see the threats posed by a free and open um, or, or threats that threats uh, posed uh, against them, right? Like, and I think that I think that there's some paradox because like we, we live in a time where more people have more ability to publish than ever before, right? We don't have to own a printing press. Each of us has a phone, an internet connection. Right? Each of us has a printing press in a way that was never true before this moment. Um, and it provides all of us with a little bit more publishing power than we ever had before. That said, uh, we're at a time where we're seeing um, aggressive uh, legislation across the country around speech and ideas, um, the banning of books, the changing of curriculums, the, f the massive reaction to the New York Times, uh, the massive reaction to the New York Times' 1619 project and laws being passed against that, that piece of journalism being taught in classrooms or read in classrooms. Um, all of which, I think, speaks and reminds us that the rights we have and we enjoy are not things that are guaranteed us indefinitely. They're things that can come under threat. Um, look, we also saw, you know, I do work with the Freedom of Press Foundation, um, which is a... a, a press freedom group. And we also saw uh, journalists being arrested, detained, tear gassed, hit with rubber bullets during the demonstrations and the protests around the country um, following George Floyd's death in the, in the years since. And when that happens, you know, I very often try to reach out to, to folks personally, especially if I know them or have a connection to them, uh, because, because I have been arrested in Ferguson. You know, um, myself and Ryan Riley of the Huffington Post um, who I met that day, who's now a dear friend, um, were detained uh, by police in Ferguson after the death of Michael Brown. And, you know, there's something particularly special about us. We were the first reporters to be detained, um, and eventually there would be dozens, if not hundreds, of reporters who were detained um, at some point. But we were among the first. I think we think we were the first reporters. And and so because of that, there was a lot of tension to that case. You know, we've been working in a McDonald's, and I recorded as we got arrested. It was a whole, it was a whole thing. Um, it, but one of the things I say, I always say this, and I always, I always caveat it with, 
I am a very vocal supporter of uh, the rights of the press and a free press. And one of the reasons that the treatment of journalists of the press matters in a circumstance like this is not that the press is special, right? We're there using the same First Amendment as everybody else, right? I'm there with my notebook and you're there with your sign that you made, right? And you've assembled and you're speaking and you're petitioning your government and I'm writing down what you're doing, right? All this protected by the same part of the Bill of Rights. So if you get arrested for your first, this is your first member of rights, it actually shouldn't be any more egregious than if I get arrested, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that, so what I always try to say or frame when we talk about reporters being detained or arrested is I think that we want to use it as a stand-in to think about, okay, if the government, the police, with the armed, uh, the armed force of the government, if they are willing to behave this way and to infringe upon the rights of someone wearing a press credential who they know it's going to result in bad publicity or a lawsuit, how might they treat someone with significantly less power? Right? Mm. That on, the, on a street during a protest, the people have the most power are the police. They've got the guns and they're allowed to use them. The press has some power. They've got cameras, we've got lawyers to call, we've got, and then you just got normal people. They don't really have much power at all. They're trying to exert whatever power they can by demonstrating, by protesting, by banding together, right? But they're the most vulnerable people out there. If the police are willing to treat the press, who do have some power a certain way, you have to imagine how the police are willing to treat the rest of these people and how they do treat them when the press isn't there recording. Mm. And I think that is a big part of it as well. Before we close off the interview... We want to change the mood just a little bit and look towards the future, specifically talking about your GU Politics discussion group. Sure. What did you come here to tell the students, and what have you learned so far throughout your experience? You know, I so my... I really love my time so far here at Georgetown. It's been great. It's been awesome. We're getting to be here in person, which is nice. You know, it's been a few years of not very much here in person going on. <laughs> so it's been nice to just see people, right? But the, um, you know, my discussion group is about the media, the media as an institution. I obviously, you know, you guys have asked me a bunch of questions. I obviously have a lot of thoughts, you know, but I'm, you know, and I have some expertise. I've worked in the media and worked in a lot of different parts of the media. But, have a you know but the media like most of our institutions has seen a massive drop off in trust it's seen a massive drop off in participation it is seen we are perceived as being a partisan media whether we are or not and i think there's some uh you know historical reasons for that but and so the question becomes most people across the political spectrum uh, in my experience, believe in the importance of the media to hold government accountable and other institutions accountable. And so that's true. And on the, and on the other hand, at the same time, we, most people are not happy with the media that we have. And so the question becomes, how do we build a media? How do we build the media that we want? And we can't do that without fully understanding the media that we have. What are its incentives? What is its history? Why does it operate the way it operates? And so... It, um, it, it, so that's so much of the conversation we're having. And one of the reasons I love having the conversation with students is because I, you know, I know what I know and I have my experiences, but I also consume a lot of media. 
I hang out with other media people. Like I'm like a, a dork about this stuff. The perspective of, of actual readers and viewers and invested, smart, interested people about the media they consume, how it could be better, how they want to be served by it, is so important. Because we can't, how, how do we, how do we solve issues of trust without talking to the people who don't trust us? Mm. Right? And so for me, these conversations are so great. These discussion groups have been so awesome because it's not really me lecturing or riffing. I mean, I answer whatever questions and I facilitate, but it's really us talking together about what is the media we have and how might we change it into a, a media that's more like what we want. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, we've covered a lot of really um, deep and important topics, but here at Fly on the Wall, we like to end our interviews on a lighter note. Um, so we're entering the lightning round portion of the interview. You're going to get three quick questions and just off the top of your head, what are your quick answers to them? You ready? To do it. All right. So first off, um, as a journalist in the field, you're often on the road covering news quite a bit. What's your go-to long journey or road trip snack? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I really like Chex Mix. Mm. Mm. So All, every part of Chex Mix or just... Oh, no, yeah, no, every part of Chuck. Mm, okay. Mm, that's a good take. Uh, next question. What song do you currently have on repeat? Oh, that's a good question. What song do I have on repeat? There's a, there's a song on Donda, the Condé West album, mm. that samples Lauren Hill. I think it's called Believe What I Say. And so I've been, I've been listening to that. Um, and there's part of the hook that like has been caught in my head for like three weeks. And so I wake up singing it. Mm. Yeah, Otis has been on repeat on my head. Yeah. Like, <laughs> And uh, last question, um, what is one place in the world that you would like to visit but haven't yet had the opportunity? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I got dinner last night with a good friend of mine who is a national security correspondent at the Washington Post, and she is flying this weekend to Cuba uh, to go to Guantanamo. I've wanted to go to Cuba for a really, really long time. I've never gotten to go. Um, someone listening should send me to Cuba. But that's, <laughs> but that's, that's my answer. Yeah, that that was really good. And uh, with that, that's a wrap on our interview. Thanks for being an amazing guest, Wesley. Thank you guys for having me. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Wesley Lowry. Make sure you are subscribed to Fly on the Wall, a GU Politics podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. And keep up with the buzz on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And, of course, the Fly is always happy to chat over email. Just reach out to flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. Catch you next week.